0: Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. We spend a lot of time here talking about wonderful vacations, trips of the lifetime, bucket list destinations, but sometimes maybe you shouldn't travel. Sometimes maybe it's going to get you into too much trouble financially. My first guest today wrote a pretty damn brilliant article in the New York Times. It is called So You're Going on a Vacation. Her name is Paulette Perhash. And Paulette, welcome to the Farmer Travel Show.
1: Thank you so much. Yes, for once I am an expert in, <laughs> in this. Oh, so this is based on your own experience. Oh, yes. Um, if my friends could hear this, they would laugh. Um, and yes, I have trouble saying no to trips. I love to travel. I have a tattoo that is a pop up book of adventure that symbolizes travel to me. And it is covering up a tattoo that I got that said, you only live once before it was became a very cliche topic or very cliche saying. But it, I think that is the the combination of my two issues that I'm such a like kind of YOLO person and I love to travel. So I have definitely gone on trips I could not afford.
0: Well, tell us about one of those and then tell us what the advice is from the experts you interviewed for this article about how to make the decision whether or not you are financially stable enough to travel.
1: Yes, I loved the vulnerability and even the experts coming to me and being like, oh yeah, I've done this too. One of them is don't lie to yourself about how much it's really going to cost. So I learned afterward, meet Sethi, Reposted the story and called them phantom costs about the little things, the pretzel in the park, the cab from the airport to the hotel. It's not just those big pieces of air travel, hotel, you know, daily food. It's the little things you know you're going to buy. I'm wearing some earrings right now that I just bought on a trip because I buy earrings everywhere I go because <laughs> that's me, right? And those cocktails you're gonna have when you go out, those kinds of things. That's the number one thing. Don't lie to yourself about how much it's going to cost. And then don't lie to your friends about how much money you really have.
0: I thought this was so spot on. People take being financially unstable as a sign of failure in themselves, probably not in their friends. They probably cut their friends a break, but a lot of people end up spending too much on vacation Because they're too afraid to tell the person they want to travel with, I can't actually afford that, right?
1: There's so much ego in it. And even myself as, you know, I'm a writer and so I should be able to be like, I choose to be a writer. So that means I can't afford X, Y, Z. But I also even feel that pressure, even though that was my choice to work in a profession that doesn't make as much money in general, I want to keep up with my friends and I feel that pressure. So just saying to your friends in a way that is proactive, hey, let's look at where we want to splurge. This is probably what I can do. This is what I can't do. And I think your friends would prefer that so much more than you secretly freaking out or like on the trip having to worry about it. Well, you also
0: gave, what was interesting advice to me? And I think I would have been too embarrassed to do this in a certain way. You also recommend maybe you... Sell services to your friends in return for discounts on your part of the trip. Tell me how that works.
1: Yeah. So I sell, I don't know. <laughs> but so, for example, I actually used this example when I did the interview. I am the cook in my family. I love to cook and I am the writer. So my family's used to like, well, that's a writer. So my mom and sister will buy the groceries and I'll cook us all dinner. And so I asked my interviewee, I said, that's, you know, how we do it in my family. Do you have any examples? And she's like, oh, I actually had someone who she's a professional nanny. And because the hotel was a little bit outside of her price range, she offered to watch the kids one day in exchange for being able to stay in the hotel. And then everyone else paid a little bit more. And I think the overall message here is we have to be able to have comfortable conversations about how much money we make without it being this shame cycle, which is really hard. I'm I'm not like, You know, I am in personal finance media and I write about travel. But this is such a theme I see over and over that in a society that can be so materialistic, your worth, your self worth is based on how much you earn and how much money you have. And so it's very, feels very embarrassing to be like, I don't have that budget for that. So one of the things that I like to do is to really frame it positively. And to say, hey, I am so focused on getting my house by 2025. I want to buy my own house. So I'm really putting a lot of money toward that. How can I reach that goal and go on this trip with you guys, right? So then it's not a no, no, no. It's I'm saying a big yes to this other thing. I'm saying a big yes to being a traveler and a writer. And so I pet sit and I do alternative ways of, um, of travel because that's my big yes. So that's where I focus.
0: Yeah. And that's, you know, and you also talk about when you're traveling with people who have differing amounts of money, it's there are, there are apps for that, right? What are some of the apps that can help you maybe economize while your
1: friends splurge? So I love Splitwise and I've used this very often just to simplify things. And it's not in a way that's like, I want to make sure that I'm not spending an extra $5, right? There's this free flow back and forth, of course, I actually recently went on a trip where everyone was in the medical industry, except for me, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And so there's like, and I'm like, Hey, do you guys want to use split to make sure like no one gets like screwed over? Cause I felt like people were paying more than I was and no one was really that into it. And I'm like, you know what? They don't care that much because they're doctors. Right. And so like, whatever they can throw it my way. And I've been up, I had worked at a tech industry while I was paying off my student loans. I've been there. Right. And I've also been the freelance writer. And so what Splitwise does is it makes it really easy. It does the math for you. You just put in I spent this, I ran to the grocery store, I spent 80 bucks on groceries for everybody. It's split that way. And then it just tallies it up at the end for you and it makes it I think it takes the um the embarrassment of bringing it up. Like, hey, hey guys, I went to the grocery store, I spent 80 bucks, you know. You can just say, "Hey, let's all put it into Splitwise and make sure that everyone is um is paying mm-hmm. Just their share and and no more, you know, and that no one gets you know no one gets a bigger bill. And I think I, I do find that I have to sell the use of this app when I'm on trips, and it just takes away the guesswork and kind of that awkwardness a little bit.
0: Well, also, you said you can use it when you're out to dinner. and maybe Dr. X has two martinis and you have water, and Dr. X has appetizer and dessert, and you just have the main course so that
1: it it becomes more fair. Absolutely. And I think that's the biggest thing where fair doesn't always mean everyone pays the same. Fair might mean that, hey, I'm a little more flush and I'm willing to grab this round. You know, I don't think that you should count on your friends to pay more just because they earn more, but everyone can put in what they got out of the trip and what their choices were, right? So, okay, I'm choosing to just have water. And I know I've gone out with people who are vegetarian, and there has been the hey let's all split the check equally and they're like hey i had you know a chickpea salad and you had a rack of ribs that's not exactly equal
0: right well it's a terrific article and i should say we are at the book passage travel writers conference talking in a room so it may be a little more echoey sounding uh, than it usually is but it's it's always such a delight to meet great up and coming writers like paulette thank you so much paulette
1: Thank you so much, Pauline.
0: We have a favorite guest back. He is Chris Reynolds. He is a travel reporter for the LA Times, and he always knows the scoop about what's happening on the West Coast of the United States. Hey, Chris, nice to speak with you again.
2: And you, Pauline.
0: So, we've been seeing a lot of news this summer about people going to places like Death Valley and Joshua Tree and having difficulties obviously with the heat. I feel like even, you know, before we were getting walloped so badly by climate change, most people knew not to go to those areas in the summer. What's
2: changed? Um, it's a curious thing. I feel like I know a portion of the answer, but not all of it. Um, you know, it, there time was, say, twenty years ago. The cliche was that if you went to Death Valley in summer, you'd you'd find uh, nobody except a handful of European tourists who who somehow got confused, or they were going to be in the United States one time for two weeks. So by gum, they were going to see Death Valley regardless of the temperature. And you still do run into those European tourists from time to time. But now you see more Americans, especially in Joshua Tree, but also in Death Valley. I I can't fully account for the Death Valley part of it. And huh. yeah, with Joshua you Tree... Think just
0: the name. Yeah, <laughs> I think there is a,
2: you know, a thrill seeker thing. But, you know, 1.1 1, 1. Hmm. 1 million people went to Death Valley last year. And just, wow. just in July, two died. Uh, one was a driver whose car pooped out in the heat, and then just expired from heat exposure. That is, the driver did. The other was a hiker who kept going in heat despite being offered opportunities to take shade. But I think his ability to reason was already diminished by his condition. And um, every time that happens, it's a cautionary tale that like, You can't, you know, you need water, you need shade, and you need to just not hike if it's after 10 a.m. and you're in Death Valley in the summertime. Because, you know, 110 degrees, 115 degrees, 120 degrees. I mean, it is fascinating to think that the Earth behaves that way. And it is interesting to be in that heat for a brief amount of time. But boy, there's danger there.
0: Well, I think it it also might have had to do, the, the increased numbers might have had to do with the fact that. This year, I think it was this year, there was a super bloom because California's weather has just been so wacky in general. There was much more rain this year. And so the whole world saw photos of these spectacular fields of flowers as far as the eye could see. I I wonder if that played into it.
2: Yeah, I'm sure you're right. Um, Because we did have such a, a wet winter for which we were grateful. Um, yes, there was there was a lot there were a lot of spring blooms and they happened they persisted longer, which was something that attracted people as well. And that yeah, you're right, that's part of the thing with Joshua tree. The other thing with Joshua tree is that a lot of people have been building uh, and renting second homes in the community just outside the park, and it's become sort of a, a farther extension of um, Palm Springs. And so there are just a lot more people from Los Angeles going out there for the weekend, and that is. Not only a winter thing; it's it's persisting on into oh. the summer. Yeah,
0: interesting. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you about this, as I said in the first interview, we were at the wonderful book passage travel writers conference together, and I should say, travel writers and photographers. I always forget about the photographers; right. so they're a big but they, part they, of it. They too. probably
2: forget about us. Yeah, but it was a blast. <laughs> yes,
0: it was a blast, and I heard you speak about. The wackiest natural phenomenon, racetracks. Yes, in this is Death Valley. What is, is
2: that? It's sort of the outback of Death Valley. So, like the, you know, Badwater, which is the lowest point in the continental US, which is like a salt flat, is a very popular spot that if you've been to Death Valley once, you probably know about. Uh, and then there are the high sand dunes. But there's also this area called the racetrack, which is you have to drive. 25 miles of really bad, rocky gravel road to get to it. But it's called the racetrack because it's this vast salt plain, but it's got big rocks on it. And they have left tracks behind as if when no one is looking, they scoot around on the desert floor. And in fact, they do. They do scoot around (laughs) on the desert floor when no one is looking. And for years, no one could figure out why that would be. Do you have a theory? Well,
0: I know the reason, but I have to say uh, aliens.
2: I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. We all sort of, some part of us wants it to be aliens, wants it to spell out, you know, words in a language. Um, But no, what it is, is it gets cold uh, and you get sort of ice crystals on that very flat surface. And then sometimes when it's that cold, the wind also blows. And when you've got the wind putting sideways pressure on the rocks and the surface beneath doesn't have as much friction because it's frozen the rocks will scoot around. Huh. And yeah, and and these this, are
0: big rocks. These are like boulders, right? Um,
2: these are, yeah, these are, these are not little skipping stones. These are larger rocks than that. They're rocks the size of your head. And, wow. um, and it's fascinating to like make the journey to get out there and s- see them in that spot. And you just think, wow, this is what happens when human beings aren't around.
0: <laughs> Have you ever gotten to see them moving around?
2: I have not seen them moving. I have, uh, I've been there and seen the the consequences, right? I've seen the rocks and the tracks and yeah, it was really, it was really a special thing. Yeah. But you have to be careful. You have to be sure you have a high clearance four wheel drive vehicle to go out there. And like right now, actually at this moment in California, we're about to get a bunch of um, unseasonal rain and the desert areas, like they're actually closing parts of Joshua tree because they just don't know what the rain's going to do. So yeah, yeah it's one, not one thing, it's another.
0: Well, uh, l- let me just make a program note for anybody who's listening. This was pre-taped. So uh, you'll, you're going to be hearing this a couple of weeks after the rains and, and hopefully, hopefully they're not going to be as bad as, as uh, the forecasts. I mean, the forecast looks like a hurricane, but let's not get too deeply into it because sure. we're, we're pre-taping this. You also, I mean, being at the LA Times, you cover travel, but often with the newsy side. Mm-hmm. And one of the greatest driving trips on the planet, not, not, not just in the United States, but on the planet, is the Pacific Coast Highway going to and from Big Sur. But there have been lots of issues there. Catch us up on what's happening there.
2: Sure. Um, Big Sur is still beautiful. And you can get to 99% of it. Uh, <laughs> the 1% that's been tricky these last uh, several months is an area, it's between Limekiln State Park and Lucia, um, which is at the south end of Big Sur. And the road is closed there because of um, landslides, which have been uh, a perpetual challenge since they completed that highway in the 1930s. Uh, it doesn't keep you from getting places, but like if you're visiting from San Francisco, you can drive down on, the, on Route 1 and see all the coastal stuff you normally see and then turn around and go back. If you're, if you're wanting to go to the classic Big Sur destinations like Esalen or Nepenth or the, the Henry Miller Library or any, you know, the state parks there, then you need to go inland and take Highway 101 and then double back. So it'll add an hour or oh. two to your drive if you're going from the south. Then again, huh. it might reduce traffic. So um, who knows? Maybe you'll end up with a superior Highway One experience as a result of the fact that it doesn't go all the way through.
0: I wonder if that will change the vibe at Esalen. I I, got, I had the pleasure of going to. I think it was the fiftieth anniversary. Oh, really? Of Esalen. it was my first time ever being naked in front of strangers because that's a place where you know it's a new, it's nudist if you want it to be right uh, and. It was such. I mean, uh, to to sum up, Esalen, it's a it's a utopian community where there are a lot of classes that are held. And back at the beginning, Hunter S. Thompson was the security guard. Yeah, uh, <laughs>
2: exactly. <laughs> I've never got. I've never been on the ground, so I'm quite quite jealous oh. of you, except for maybe the naked part. Not so jealous about that. But um, I would be. I would love to to see the grounds closer up, but yeah, when I was recently doing a story on Big Sur, I stumbled upon uh, some accounts of Hunter Thompson's stay there back when Esalen was known as Slate's Hot Springs, and yeah, Ooh. he was supposed to be the caretaker to keep unsavory types out. And then, right, yeah, yeah, it didn't hilarious. Go, it didn't go so well.
0: <laughs> no, it, it's a great place. You gotta you gotta go and cover it, Chris. I Even do. the naked part uh, I thought would be <laughs> uncomfortable, but. There were all kinds of bodies there. You know, you just, it just became, uh, I don't know, like a costume party in a strange way.
2: Well, I think, Uh, I think someone at that travel conference must have said the key to writing a a memorable story is to go outside of your comfort zone, right? So here we go.
0: Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I was certainly outside of that, but anyway. (laughs) Um, So one of the reasons, you know, so much about California is every year you have to create a list of the best places to go. How do you do that? And how do you not cover the same places over and over? I mean, does California really change that much?
2: Uh, it's, by, it's my privilege and my burden to try and sort that out because it's, it's constant. This list of 101 great, great um, adventures in California it's um, we, we need to nod toward the perennial favorites like Big Sur, um, but we also need to put some new things on there. Like, for instance, beneath the, the Coronado Bridge in San Diego, which takes people out to that, the Hotel del Coronado, there is uh-huh. an amazing collection of Chicano murals that were originally Ooh. went up as a protest against the, the State Highway Department when they built the bridge after the community believed they'd been promised a park. Um, huh. and it has now been it is now evolved into a into a park that is made vital by these tremendous murals and there's a little museum there and it's a fascinating place and there are a couple of really good restaurants nearby as well so i mean that's a place that uh is an example of one that like 20 years ago no one would have pointed you in that direction and uh right. and it's you know the the state does continue to evolve and part of that is is you know the recognition and emergence of um, of uh, places uh, run and you know nurtured over time by people of color that haven't gotten attention from um, from the powers that be in the world of tourism before. Now there's more sure. attention being paid, and we get a, you know we're all richer for it.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Are that was there any big adventure destination on your list somewhere where you really you know would get your heart pumping?
2: Um, let me think. Well, if, if, you go up, if you go by horseback into the Sierra um, mm. to visit a lake, most folks do that in order to go fishing. I'm not much of a fisherman, but, um, but any excuse to get on a horse in the Sierra is pretty great, especially if you're doing it early enough in the summer that there's still some snow on the ground. Um, that's mm. brilliant. Wow. And it's not something that people think about necessarily when they imagine a trip to California.
0: So up into the Sierra Mountains, what what do you see and do up there? I'm I'm assuming the views are great, but but what else is there?
2: Uh, you 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 camp probably by a body of water, and you you go hiking. You might throw a line in the water and see if fish fish want to cooperate. And uh, yeah, it's mostly it's mostly a hiking thing.
0: People forget how huge California is, and you can get almost every ecosystem on the planet there. What is the most surprising ecosystem that you've you've covered there or that people don't know about?
2: Wow, that's an interesting question. I think, well, all right, in Yosemite National Park, this is sort of an amended ecosystem. In Yosemite okay. National Park, everybody goes to Yosemite Valley because it has those enormous waterfalls and granite rock faces. What very few people, even Californians, what very few realize is that, you know, within about ten miles of Yosemite Valley, still within the park, is a valley called Hetch Hetchy, and it's like a smaller version of Yosemite Valley. It's got a couple of thousand-foot waterfalls. It's got granite rock faces. It's spectacular. However, a hundred years ago, it was dammed, and the the bottom two hundred feet of the valley floor flooded in order to provide a reservoir to provide drinking water to San Francisco. Huh. Yeah, in fact the people who you know the the power players of San Francisco persuaded Congress to rewrite federal law to allow construction of a dam in a national park in order to make that happen. And obviously nobody from Los Angeles can ever cast aspersions about shady doings in order to get a hold of water because that's the only reason Los Angeles exists is because of shady doings in order to get a hold of water.
0: Was this was this in the movie Chinatown?
2: Um, The San Francisco part of it was not. The Los Angeles part of it was. Um, Oh, all right. Yeah, but you can still hike in Hetch Hetchy. You hike along the edge of the reservoir and you begin the hike by going across the top of the O'Shaughnessy Dam, which is a 400-foot dam. Um, You get there in the morning and the light is right. You get wonderful rainbows over the mist. And this mm. summer, because there was so much snow in the Sierra to be melting, there, there were, you know, the waterfalls were going off. And you actually had to be careful on the trail because there are a couple of spots where excess water flows sideways across the trail. And you end up knee deep in fast moving, very cold water above a steep slope. And that's, you know, not necessarily where everybody wants to be. <laughs> By yeah. now, I think now that we're later in the summer and into the fall, the, the amount of water going across the trail will be less. But Hetch Hetchy is a place that not that many people see because it's an hour and a half away from Yosemite Valley. Um, but it is fascinating as, and it's, it's got some California history that most people don't realize.
0: Yeah. Very cool. All right. We've been talking about a lot of nature sites. What was an urban site or two that made the list this year?
2: Oh, that's an interesting question. There's so much going on in Los Angeles. Um, it, it, isn't all, it isn't all the way done yet. Well, okay. On Wilshire Boulevard, there is a conglomeration of museums. I suspect you've been, been here a time or two. There is, first of all, the La Brea sure. Tar Pits. Uh-huh. Next, next to the La Brea Tar Pits is the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, which is in right. the middle of a big expansion that is going to actually take its gallery space across Wilshire Boulevard in an elevated way. And that the museum is part, partially open now, but I think in the next year or so they're going to finish the job. Meanwhile, if you keep going west beyond the L.A. County Museum of Art, you get to the Academy Museum, which opened I think about a year ago, year and a half ago, and it is yeah. it is the the museum by the people who bring us the Oscars, and so it's got props and footage from you know a, decades of films, an amazing sure. screening room. And a pretty nice event space up on the roof, actually. It's, I think, really rapidly joining the very short list of places that you have to go to when you visit Los Angeles. Um, so you've got all that. And then across the street is the Peterson Automotive Museum, which has got more cars and more amazing cars than just about any place else. And there's a craft oh. museum within a block or two also. So you can do all that uh, after having parked once uh, on Wilshire Wow.
0: Is, is the Broad within spitting distance or no that that's a really kind of an amazing contemporary art museum with with Every big name of contemporary art in it.
2: it. It absolutely is. It is not within spitting distance of that. It's it's part of the other conglomeration of cultural <laughs> outlets uh, in the heart of downtown Los Angeles, on top of Bunker Hill. So you can go to the, the the Broad, and across the street from the Broad is the Museum of Contemporary Art, and across the street the other way from the Broad is the uh, is Disney Hall, that wonderful shiny metal. Uh, creation of Frank Geary, where the right. um, where the L.A. Philharmonic plays, and plenty of other guest performers play as well.
0: Well, what I love about what what you're saying is, I, I think that there's been a narrative uh, on the news lately that California is losing population, that it's yesterday's news, and yet. We're seeing this continuing flowering of the arts with these major institutions expanding exponentially because clearly the demand is there.
2: Right? Interesting. Yes, we're down in population. We're all the way down to thirty-nine million. I think we were (laughs) thirty-nine and a half million before in California. Yes, it's. I mean, and there are certainly you know urban challenges happening all over California, just as they are elsewhere. Yes. But something that it's interesting about Los Angeles is that for the longest time, people complained that LA didn't have a center, and that there wasn't—you know—people didn't live downtown, and and um, that has been changing over the last twenty years because they sta- changed local laws to allow for adaptive reuse of existing buildings, and so huh. Los Angeles's downtown LA's DTLA's population has been steadily growing for the last twenty years, and I think that has allowed. Um, for a greater sense of vitality now as we come out of COVID. And yes, downtown Los Angeles has lost workers, but it doesn't feel as dramatically curtailed as, for instance, the financial district of downtown San Francisco. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, no. there are other chapters yet to be written in that, but it is an interesting element of LA that because the, you know, the downtown dwelling population arrived so late, That there's still a little bit of a sense of a momentum there
0: yeah no it's actually very vibrant i always go to the la travel and adventure show which is held in downtown so i stay in downtown in recent years just because parking is so outrageously expensive i've done it without a car and i've been fine uh, walking to the restaurants and walking to night spots and walking to the convention center for my speeches and it, it you know it it feels like a different Los Angeles. It's yeah. very, very much on the rise. Absolutely.
2: Yes. That part of downtown, especially, yeah, you can walk from, you know, there's a whole bunch of hotels next to the convention center. There's also the venue where the, uh, you know, where there, where there are lots of concerts and and uh, sports events. And um, it's, it, it's really fun to watch those parts of downtown begin to grow together with each other so that instead of being multiple isolated nodes, they're connected in a, in a really vital huh. way. So that's yeah. that's been fun to see.
0: No, absolutely. And it's been fun to talk with you, Chris, as always. Thank you so much for appearing on the Farmer Travel Show. Always a delight.
2: Thanks so much, Pauline. I appreciate it.
0: And I'm going to say goodbye for this week, and I'm taking a vacation for next week. So there's not going to be a podcast next week, but there certainly will be one the week after. Uh, So please put it on your calendar, subscribe to the podcast, come back and join me. And I'm actually getting on a plane in about four hours. So I have to rush to the airport now. So I'm going to wish myself and our listeners a hearty bon voyage. I'll see you soon.